Hello and welcome to The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, where we tend to talk about politics and the culture war and also loads of other topics. You'll know that we did one on Genesis recently with the Reverend Jamie Franklin, who I called a based vicar. And today we have someone I'm going to call a based menswear stylist, and we'll see in a minute if he agrees with that definition. He is the author of the excellent book, The Appearance of Power. It is Mr. Tanner Guzzi. Thanks for doing the show, Tanner. Thanks for having me on, Nick. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so I called you a, a, a based stylist because it's a kind of, it's a strange crossover area I'm trying to sort of explain to the listener or viewer, which is I, I have you in the kind of Zuby category, which is like, you know, there's these people on Twitter, it's kind of fitness, it's other things that aren't strictly politics, but they bleed into the, the culture war. You know, the paranoid guardian take is that if you go to the gym, you're going to immediately become a member of the alt-right. But, Absolutely. But, but there's a grain of truth in that, perhaps, which see if you, what you think to this that if you're into things like style in your case or fitness, which you're also into, if you're into sort of self-determination, certain amount of individualism, community, but not collectivism, is that sort of inherently conservative or in a sense political now? I Now I would argue yes. And I think that's a pretty sad commentary on both the right and the left that this has become what galvanized into just this being our one category. Like you can only be right wing if you care about your fitness or you care about your aesthetic in a certain way, you care about self-development because that should be fairly universal. So I agree and I think it's insane. Yeah, it is kind of mad that we've ended up, because I think you, you, you don't really talk about politics explicitly. You, you wanted to be a talk radio political host but at <laughs> one point. A long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but then you, you decided you couldn't be bothered talking about politics all the time. It was so heavy all the time, and a lot of it felt very repetitive and even masturbatory and everything. And that's certainly not to say that there isn't room and, and need for guys like you to do what you do, guys like Tucker or anybody else. But for me, I fell out of love with it pretty quickly. Yeah. Okay. And So where, where would you see yourself now? Just explain, because I've kind of jumped ahead for the listener. What would you say it is you, you do now? So you do style consultations on men's style and things like that, but it's kind of much mm -hmm. bigger than that. You have a kind of whole philosophy around it. Yeah, I think the best way to describe it, rather than it being styling, is more in the realm of appearance psychology, where I work mostly with men, and the whole idea is how do we take what your identity is, all the best parts of yourself, and have you learn how to dress in a way that brings all of those out, and have you not hate the way that you look. And so you're reinforcing the best parts of your, your identity when you see yourself in the mirror, that's what you're communicating to other people, whether you're at work or out on dates or anything else, but how do we create that that congruence between who you are on the inside and what you present on the outside. Okay, very interesting. And and obviously you say you work mainly with men. What have you found with men now? Like men are thought to be in crisis these days or you know, they're mm -hmm. either sort of masculinity is hated. I mean, have you noticed that men come to you that they're angry and lost or are they just sort of crushing life kind of despite all that? Um, I'm pretty grateful that for the most part, the guys that I end up working with are certainly aware of what's going on and how masculinity is being perceived and how it's being treated. But it's not guys who are really despairing about things. It's guys who are really trying to focus on their own sovereignty and they're trying to stack as many wins in their camp as they can so that they can weather the storm, whatever it is that's coming. And so this is one of them that they have as well. Yeah. Okay. Because there's a whole sort of subculture that gets a little bit weird at times, like men are out here chewing 
mastic gum so they can have ladies don't realize how hard this is they like oh women have to have makeup like men are out here chewing weird gum that makes your jaw yep. possibly we're slight. mewing we're putting the tongue up and, and going with my with uh, dr mew and absolutely yeah yep. putting his tongue at the roof of your mouth to, to try and get a better jawline over like 10 years or something imperceptibly yep. i mean does this stuff work i've got no idea but they're all these weird and they're like sunning themselves to get their testosterone up i don't know you're sort of adjacent to some of this stuff i think yeah, and I'm of the opinion, I think it's actually kind of fun. In fact, I did, I did an Instagram uh, post about this a little while ago where I don't know the validity of any of it. I don't know if, if stunning your balls does anything. I don't know if, if uh, the jaws or size actually does anything as far as what your, uh, what your jawline looks like. But what I like about it is that it is self-experimentation. It's a willingness to say... I want to improve my situation and I'm going to try things to see what they are. And I also love that it takes science out of the realm of the like priest class of the white lab coats and the CDC and all of these other like organizations. And they're the only ones who are allowed to do science. And it turns it back into, no, science is just me trying to see if I can figure out how to make things work and I'm going to experiment on myself. And so in that regard, I love all that more kind of like esoteric right wing bodybuilder stuff, like seeing all these guys just break open the walls of no, we're just going to experiment and we're going to see and we're even going to make kind of a tongue in cheek subculture about it. I'm all for it. I think it's fun, irrespective of the validity of red light exposure or any of that stuff. Yeah, I take your point. There is a sort of great independent spirit to it. And it's a bit like how a lot of these fit fitness Twitter guys are kind of into Bitcoin and stuff like that. It's a kind of quasi libertarian mm -hmm subculture it's kind of like men saying no we don't buy they're not going to be vaccinated uh, they're not going to be buying into all that stuff chances are and they're just going to be doing their own thing and they're often the healthiest people they're a kind of weird elite yep. subculture in a way yeah and you can definitely see it get taken too far uh, my friend alexander cortez has been harping on this a lot where he calls it like orthorexia right. where it's you know I'm not going to touch anything that has any seed oils in it. Seed and I have oil. to have the perfect nighttime routine so that it has, you know, the temperatures at the right level. And I stop with any blue light exposure at this particular, like you can get to the point where you get insane about it and you start, I think Alexander says you're majoring in the minors, but as long as there's again, that idea of sovereignty and self-determination about your health, then I think you're still winning on it. Yeah, because actually I talked about this strangely in my last episode with a comedian called Simon Evans who had a testosterone issue, he found out. So then he, he was now taking, you know, restorative doses of testosterone, whatever mm -hmm. it's called. And he he um, he mentioned that as well, the endocrine disruptors. You know, you're like, oh, the endocrines, and they're everywhere. And you can go yeah. mad thinking about them. So I said I prefer to do it in a kind of spiritual way. Like, I'm just going to lock my testosterone, just going to be there. I don't know what I mean, but I just think you can get too obsessed, like you say, with seed oils. And uh, I'm trying to take a more Andrew Tate kind of, I just make my testosterone work. But obviously, that <laughs> doesn't make sense either. But mine was re weirdly good when it was tested, so I'm all right for now. But yeah, you can definitely go mad talking about the endocrines in the shower gel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think it really just, I mean, dude, I would be a total hypocrite if I harped on it too hard. I'm... I have my feet on a grounding mat right now, you know, like, <laughs> of, course you do. Uh, of course, right. But I think that it really you're is sunning just... your balls as we speak. Just, just <laughs> exactly. out of shot. You don't see what's going on beneath the camera right now. <laughs> and it's working. You've got I, six I, kids. So yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to harp on it too hard, 
But I do think that if it gets to the point where it stops you from being able to really thrive in your life, where it's like, sorry, I'm not, we're not going out on a date night because there's, there's no restaurants that don't have food with seed oils in it. Or I uh, am going to move completely off grid so that I'm in a Faraday cage and I'm never exposed to any electricity because of the supposed inflammation that, that causes. Like, you have to find a way to be able to, my opinion, is you have to find a way to be able to maximize what you can while still being able to exist in in the culture and the society that you want to to yeah and when it comes to these um tribal sort of subcultures you made an interesting point that when it comes to style and ways of dressing it's going to like be more and more atomized and broken down into little mini subcultures like one obvious example might be the sort of archetypal blue haired screaming liberal mm-hmm. woman or something i mean so i'm trying to remember what you said about it but we're not going to have sort of these general movements in style it's now going to be these little subcultures is that the way you see it going yeah i think that we have because of the internet and certainly because of like globalization we've stepped away from there being a homogenous western culture or a homogenous eastern culture or anything else and so the way that we have gone is you're either part of this kind of like lifeless, soulless, globalized, mainstream culture that really doesn't have much of any identity whatsoever, or you've created or found subcultures that are largely on the internet and were very balkanized. And Mm -hmm. what my prediction is, is that you will see more and more aesthetic tweaks and more, more specific styles, kind of like we saw in punk rock in the 70s, 80s and 90s, or you're seeing with social justice warriors and all of that with the blue hair and the, the crappy bangs and all of that. Um, yeah, I think we'll see more and more of that with these different subcultures and there won't be just mainstream style trends for to a very large extent anymore. Okay. And we've kind of, yeah, it's interesting about the, the subculture. I mean, we, I, we grew up sort of, and this ties into one of your big themes that, that it's actually not effeminate to dress well. So this is kind of a big theme in your book, the appearance of power. And actually, that you talk about the sort of, which I think what you said there, the skater, did you say the skater or the sort of 90s? Or punk rock. Punk rock. Yeah. yeah. And we, mm-hmm. there was grunge. In this country, there was a different thing. There was Britpop. So when I grew up, we'd just, it'd just been grunge. And then it was kind of Britpop, which did have a kind of weird, like dandy, like foppish element in, the, in mm-hmm. so, certain bands like Blur and the Suede. There's one called Suede, which yes. is already, already you know, a, a material. Then there was Menswear. There was literally a group called Menswear that were like a kind of poor man's Suede. But then in the north, you had you had Oasis, and you had that's much more influential where I was, which is basically you'd wear a big green jacket because it's raining all the time, but it's kind of cool mm-hmm. as well. It's like a Liam Gallagher jacket. So there was a kind of, but but we did grow up therefore with a kind of idea of while Manchester has its certain style subculture, there was a kind of idea that the whole thing is lame, and so mm-hmm. and so where's so we've sort of gone from you talk about in the past it was warriors that dressed the best. And then we've sort of degenerated from there. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah. I would say if you zoom out and you look at any culture across the world and you look at really any point in history other than the mid to late 20th century, men have always cared about appearance. It hasn't been the top of the hierarchy of masculine value, not by any extent, and it shouldn't be. But appearance has always been something that mattered. And you would have the bureaucrats or the priests or the warriors, they would all dress differently based on what it was that you did. And the ones who did care the most, the ones who you could not dress like unless you would earn the right to dress like them was the warrior class. There was a lot of 
rank and earning and status and everything that was always exemplified by these men and the way that they dressed. And so it is kind of interesting that we moved away from that being something that was normal into it being effeminate, gay, dishonorable, whatever pejorative you wanted to throw at it in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, but you couldn't care about how you dressed and be a red-blooded masculine man is the culture that a lot of us kind of came of age in. Yeah, and we're a similar age, so I think it was very similar. It, was, it is strange, isn't it? And it was an assumption we all have. Is that, was that another attack on masculinity, or was it just a kind of general sort of entropy of everything everything sort of the culture in general became less aesthetic you know we do brutalist architecture is it all part of that trend yeah i think it's part of that where especially with boomers and then it got even heavier with gen x where even just being sincere about anything and being anything other than aloof and cynical was lame and you were stupid and a, and a weirdo or a nerd or a dork or whatever for being that way. And so the only way that you could be cool, the only way that you could have any status, especially if you were a teenager during this time period was to just be so above it all, or maybe be a little bit ironic about things, but sincerity was un was unacceptable. Sincerity was for the dorks and for the losers. And so that very much translated into style as well. Yeah, that had an absolute poisonous effect on me, I think, in general, because I went to a state school in the north of England in a village, and it was like, you couldn't try at anything. You had to pretend no. you weren't, weren't smart. You know what I mean? I, like, I got A's, but like, I had to hide the fact that it was... Yep. <laughs> you, yep. Be, like, you get it. It's so ridiculous, because if you're on the older end of millennial, and you're in a kind of place that's a bit more old-fashioned like I was, it, you, you have a sort of Gen X mentality. So mm -hmm. that's my theory on it. So that's the t mentality I had. It was cynical. I, I think it really held us back, because... Then later on, you got this kind of X factor culture where it was all about trying. And then now there's like hustle culture on the internet. And so but, but, do you, I don't know if you think we were impacted in our age group by that whole thing. Absolutely, I think we are. And I think that that's one of the biggest things that we are working against from a culture war perspective right now is you get a lot of guys who are lamenting where things are, but they're terrified to actually try to create anything that's different because of the ridicule, because of that internalized sense of, I'm, I'm going to feel shame or I'm going to be ostracized, I'm going to be rejected, or I don't need to try because I don't care what anybody thinks of me, whatever, however it is that, uh, that a lot of us in this age demographic frame it in our minds, you, you can't fight a culture war by being cynical and aloof and apathetic. You, you can't, you're never gonna win with that attitude, but that's the one that we were steeped in in our most formative years. Yeah, and this is one positive thing about like Andrew Tate, who's obviously, uh, you know, people have very divided opinions on. He always talks about doing your best and trying hard. And that was not the thing we had. And it was like excelling in all areas. But do you think it's almost mm -hmm. become, and it is quite frightening to think, oh, I've got to start now. You're like, you know, like I wasted my 20s, whatever it is. Now I've got to start excelling in all areas. I mean, it is quite a, a daunting for, for men that maybe, I mean, I find it daunting. I'm doing better in a lot of ways, but I, it is quite daunting. But do you think men just have to now? Do you think with the sort of mm -hmm. Pareto distribution of the dating market or, you know, in general, that they have to just excel in all areas like money, style, physique, et cetera, et cetera? I don't think you necessarily have to excel in all areas, but I do think that you need to excel in being willing to grow and develop in all or at least as many areas as you possibly can. Um, yeah, I think that you have a lot of people, <laughs> the best way that I've heard it, and some random girl on TikTok, but it always makes me laugh every time I see it, is that you have to summit Cringe Mountain in order to get <laughs> into the Valley of Cool, right? Or like Ed Lattimore, who uh, I know that you're connected with, he puts it where like embarrassment is the cost of entry, you know? You, you cannot get to, and you look at anybody who has done anything worthwhile, 
And you take somebody like Andrew Tate and his first, his first day sparring was probably a joke. You look at somebody like Tony Hawk who had to learn how to ride a skateboard and sucked at it the very first day. You look at anybody who has been good at anything and they aren't naturally that way. They suck at it and they're willing to work through the suck factor. And yeah, it is harder to deal with that in your late 20s, your 30s, your 40s than it is to deal with it when you're 9 or 12 or 15 or whatever. But sorry, like that, we don't, we don't have the luxury of, of going back in time. We also don't have the luxury of just pretending that it doesn't matter. If you want to live the life you want to live, you have to be willing to try and put in the effort on these things. Yeah. And, um, and even people like Tate have gone through a massive evolution. If you watch old clips of him and stuff, all these mm -hmm. old documentary of him, he was always very funny, but he certainly didn't look as good as he does now. And all these people go through, we see them at their kind of peak, but they, it, you know, it goes through people like the late Kevin Samuels. He was a, he was a image consultant, but he go, looked at his early videos and he was nowhere near what he, what he got to. So yeah, there yep. is a people. Yeah, there is that ongoing evolution, and style is sort of annoyingly for me. I mean, I'm, I've gone with the with the standard black T-shirt again, partly because it's 30 degrees in here and I'm sweaty. But mm -hmm. style is annoyingly something we all have to. I say annoyingly because it's been tough for me, but it's something we all have to confront, isn't it? It's like money or sort of food. You have to have like an. Att you, you can't not confront it. You, you know, even mm -hmm. even what even having no attitude towards it is an attitude towards it. It's a bit like in The Devil Wears Prada when she. She's mocking the whole thing and laughing at it. And Meryl Streep's like, oh, you, you think you're, you're exempt from all this? I can't remember the exact words, but it's like, you, right. what you're wearing now was chosen from a bunch of stuff by people in this room like five years ago. And it trickled Absolutely. down to your crappy little bargain basement thing. So, you know, what's your take on that? That we all have to sort of, we think we're not even doing it, but we, we are making choices. They're just not very good. Totally. Yeah. I, I, style is a visual language and it's biologically hardwired into us. And it's not even unique to us as human beings. You have, you have entire animal species that have this visual language. Lions have manes, not because it protects their neck or because it provides better sun protection. or it, it's, it's visual language. Or puffer fish get really big because it's a visual language. Or peacocks have their feathers because it's a visual language. Like This is something that is hardwired into us, and we make judgments and assessments based on visual data that is presented to us. And... Anytime that you try to pretend that you're exempt from that, you're really just deluding yourself and you're tricking yourself. And ultimately what you're, what you're communicating to yourself and other people is almost this level of like you're pouting about it. Like, I don't want it to be that way and I'm gonna you know, stamp, my, stamp my feet and slam my fist and you shouldn't judge me based on who I am, but that's just the reality of who we are. And you can pout about it or you can embrace it and your life will be infinitely better if you learn how to embrace it. Yeah, yeah, and and you also made a point on one podcast that um, beauty is a is an inherent good in itself, and and it's sort of it's like an also sort of moral obligation. So it's kind of like the way I see it is, you know, once you've noticed it, and I'm aware of these things because I, I have taste in other areas, whether it's literature or mm -hmm. films or something, I'm aware of it, and then I haven't sorted it with, with my own style. So it's like, oh, once you've noticed it and kind of not done anything about it. That is kind of immoral. It's the kind of the Peterson clean, clean your bloody room. It's all that kind of stuff. It's like it's <laughs> yeah. like you have to. You're sort of morally obligated to improve these areas in some sense. Is that right? Yeah, and I would say that if you can really embrace beauty, it stops. At some point, you will cross a threshold where it stops being an obligation and starts being a deep desire and a necessity unto itself. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's. Uh, oh, geez, I'm totally blanking on his first name. Roger Scruton. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
he talks about beauty and its inherent value all the time. And some of the best lectures that I've ever seen on it where beauty is something that is desirable unto itself. And a lot of men will cringe at the idea of you need to make yourself beautiful. And I don't mean beautiful in the way that a woman is beautiful or that a sunset is beautiful or that an Aston Martin is beautiful, but I mean beautiful and aesthetically pleasing and sending the right signals in a way that is inherently masculine and acknowledges that humanity is beautiful. And that I do, I think you have not only an obligation, but to a large extent, a right. And your life will be better if you can embrace that inherent internal and external beauty and you get to have both of those as part of who you are. Yeah, yeah. Scruton had a brilliant documentary called Why Beauty Matters that was mm -hmm. very much about that. Whereas we've, we've been, I sort of contrast that with another art documentary called The Shock of the New, which was about modern art. And you see the difference, inherent beauty versus the endless subversion of what if a messy bed is art? You go, well, okay, but then that's kind of the end of that conversation. You know what I mean? It's that's like, it. yeah, that's it. You've made that point now and everything else is just mm -hmm. degradation. And now everything's art. Well, it started with Duchamp with the urinal. Now it's, once the urinal can be art, then, you know, anything's art anything. and the whole thing's over. Whereas this subculture we've talked about is kind of, is pushing this idea that actually, no, these things matter. Beauty is important. Self-development, self-mastery, all these kind of things. Yeah, and like I say, it's almost inherently political, which as you said, is kind of lame that we're at that point. But um. Just so I don't get too ahead of myself, then where do you start with people? I mean, where, you know, someone like me, normal guy, well, some might argue I'm not, but I've been mocked for my two identical blue jackets that I have on the telly. Mm -hmm. I've been mocked for my black t-shirt. Someone on the podcast said, you're not a pastor yet, Nick. So where do you start? You get a normal guy who's, you know, they come along. Where do you start with improving, improving their style and so on? So there's two ways to start with this. And the first one is really pretty easy. And this is one that guys can do without me. And it is take what you're already wearing and just execute on it better, right? A lot of guys feel like when they hear what I do for a living or they think about improving their style, they automatically go to the default of, okay, I wear casual clothing and Tanner is saying I have to wear more formal clothing. And so that's the solution. And that's not actually the solution. We are not good, bad, indifferent, ugly, whatever. We're not a formal society anymore. That's definitely a major difference between the 21st century and the 20th century, or even any century of Western civilization prior. We're not, we're not a formal culture anymore. We're not a dignity culture anymore. We're not a lot of those things. And so if you work in an environment or live in an environment where you're wearing jeans and a t-shirt and sneakers, showing up in a suit the next day is very culturally obtuse and illiterate, and it's not going to do you any good. And, but what you can do is you can wear better fitting, higher quality materials, better textured, all of these variables of still jeans, a t-shirt and a pair of sneakers. And it will look better, it will feel better, it will create more of that beauty. It will also give you a little bit of a sense of rebellion against the ugly. And so it does have a little bit of that punk rock ethos to it. And you will find that you're integrated better by just starting with that. What most guys find at that point is that that's a really good place to start, but it's also not the end game. And that's where guys will come in and work with me. And where we start then is actually figuring out who you are on the inside. Like Nick, what is it that makes you unique? What are, what are your core values? What is it that you have to offer to the world? What is it that you want set at your eulogy? How is it that you define yourself? And then we work together to figure out what are different ways that you can use clothing to bring that out so that that's what you see in the mirror, that's what you see on camera, that's what you present, yes, to the world, but most importantly to yourself every single day that you get dressed. Yeah, very interesting. 
So it's not just like in that movie, Crazy Stupid Love, where he comes along and he makes Steve Carell wear a bunch, a bunch of really hot layers, so he's he's sweating. <laughs> right. It's a funny movie. I mean, he does wear great clothes in that with Gosling, but it's uh, that's a kind of cliche that you, it's about suddenly changing ninety degrees, or no, it'd be one eighty degrees, wouldn't it? And suddenly um, wearing completely different ultra formal stuff. It's not that. And uh, you, and and there's a whole philosophy. You even said you don't. Um, you said to me you don't even. They don't even look at clothes for like the first two months. Something right. like that. Yeah, and that's because, okay, you take you take Crazy Stupid Love or you take Hitch in these kind of like film adaptations or you take Queer Eye for the Straight Guy or anything else that's like this. You hire a stylist and what these what they will focus on is purely just the aesthetic improvement or just that beauty aspect of it. And that's not good enough, especially for men, because we have a sense of identity that is very intertwined with our appearance. And I know most guys who are listening will kind of go, no, I don't, no, no, I don't. I don't care at all about how I look. And it's like, okay, you will go to the end of the earth. The the number of guys that I find that will like scour thrift stores or like go to the one shop that's still in business that still sells the same jeans that they wore in high school 30 years ago, even though they're out of style because they're so set that those are my jeans and this is who I am. Like think about how unwilling you are to change your style or evolve or adapt it because the more unwilling you are to change it, the more your identity is rooted in your style. Okay. Mm. And that's not a bad thing. That's one of the things that's a problem with a lot of men is we feel like it's shallow or vain or superficial or effeminate or whatever to have any sort of identity relationship with our style. And that's that's just part of being a man. Again, you go back to any culture and that's the way that it's worked. And so when you work with a stylist or you go through a crazy stupid love transformation or something else like that, you will get something that may be aesthetically better, but it in no way aligns with what your sense of identity is. And this is what I did myself when I started my business 10 years ago. And I found that when I would follow up with my clients three months, six months later, they were all going back to wearing the exact same crappy stuff that they had on before because it actually felt like them in what they were wearing. You go and you watch the people that go through these transformations on these reality shows and when you see the follow-up, they're not wearing the new stuff, the trendy, the fashionable, the stuff. they're wearing the stuff that they were before because if a man has to choose between something that he feels like himself in and looks ugly or something that looks good but feels like a costume, he will pick the ugly stuff that feels authentic. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is those are not mutually exclusive. You just have to do a little bit more work in order to create a style that is actually more authentic and more congruent than what you're currently wearing while also being aesthetically superior to what you're wearing too. Interesting. It's doable. You just have to work harder. Yeah, and it's very interesting they went back like like the biggest loser when you that, that mm-hmm. fat loss show, then you they cut to them, they say, Well, how how are they doing three months later? And most of them are just massively fat again. You're like, Oh, they yep. lost it. So they went back into their loser clothes. That's that's fascinating. Cause, well, because they felt like them. That is interesting. And um, it's like yo-yo styling is the same <laughs> as yo-yo dieting, right? <laughs> there you go. That's that's my email this week. I'll work on that. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's a good idea. <laughs> no, you're welcome. Um, so uh, yeah, because you thought I called your approach like Mr. Miyagi, wax on, wax off. Because mm-hmm. at first we don't even we're not even we're not kicking anyone yet, guys. We're gonna go out to the fence and we're gonna start painting. That's kind of what you're doing, right? It's, it's a whole philosophy yeah. first. Right. You can't dress in a way that reflects who you are if you don't know who you are. And most guys have a pretty good surface level idea of who they are. But once they go through a program with me, they have a much better idea of what that is. In fact, I've had quite a few clients who, by the time we're done, they're like, 
dude, you know me better than my wife does. Nobody ever asks me questions like this. Nobody's ever cared enough to get to know me on this level. And so it's fun to kind of dive into that that deeply with them and then help them understand this is now how you present it so you feel like that all the time. Is it really the, the connection between who they are and the clothes that they're missing? Or you think they genuinely don't even, hadn't even contemplated who they are either? Depends on the guy, but a lot, of, a lot of us really don't. We know who we are when it comes to our careers or maybe our status within our friend groups or when it comes to uh, political or religious affiliations and all of those things matter. But when it comes to like a fuller, bigger picture version of who we are, a lot of us don't deal with that kind of introspection. Right, right. Because most of men's time is spent taking the piss out of each other, calling each other gay and so on, <laughs> or whatever it is now. <laughs> it used to be that in the 90s, but probably not that anymore. Nope, can't do that anymore. No, it's, yeah. uh, it's some other... A lot of gay guys I know are, are fine with that kind of thing. They, 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 oh, they, yeah. they, they get the joke, it's just, it's, but they're not, you know... If you go on Twitter, you, you wouldn't believe that, but of course they do get it. But um, right, I mean, it's like you say somebody's lame, and you're not saying well, your legs don't work, you know? Like, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. So, so we, we, that's a good point. We we don't always. So, what would be a typical question you might ask ask on, when you're you know doing this deep dive sort of thing on men? What's a typical question you might ask them that that makes them think, hey, this guy knows me better than my wife. I hadn't thought about this. <laughs> so one of the first ones that I ask is. And the question that's always really interesting is what the original question is. It may be things like, how, how do you want your eulogy to read? What, what do you want people to say about you at your funeral? You know, and that's, that's a pretty good way of helping guys to start to kind of like summarize what they want their life to be. But then the follow-up one is the one that they never ask themselves. And it is, how can your appearance help you become that man? And most guys go, I don't know. I've never even considered that idea. I've never even thought that that could have any part to play in it. But as soon as they think that it can, then it starts to open up the doors and they go, oh, oh, okay. There are a lot of things that I could be doing that I'm not doing. And then that gets the momentum going where we start to talk a lot more about, you know, what is, uh, what, what kind of father do you want to be? Or what's your relationship with, with your work like? And do you feel like that's a good relationship? And what would you like that to actually look like for you? Those types of questions where the, the assumption is always, I wanna be as high status as I can be. I wanna make as much money as I can be. I wanna be uh, as competent as I can be. And that's always the assumption is that like, that's what it means to be a man. And most guys don't ever get asked anything deeper than that, which is a, which is a shame. Very interesting. So is it the, what percentage is the clothes and what percentage is just the fact that they've decided to put effort into themselves? Uh, you mean as far as like how, how different it looks? Yeah, like, yeah, what, what, yeah, what, what comes across? What's making the most, what is the thing that, I'm, well, I kind of mean, what is the thing that's making the most impact on their lives? Is it that they're wearing better clothes? Or is it just that the fact that they've gone to you implies that they've, they've committed to make a big effort to improving themselves in general? Is that really the key it's, thing? It's both because what the clothing now becomes is a representation to them of the fact that they are now living a different life and they're seeing themselves differently. And so they no longer see the old version of themselves in the mirror. They no longer see the old version of themselves on a Zoom call, on dating sites, on social media. They see this newer, more fully fleshed out version. And so it helps reinforce that growth and that identity. And so it's both for sure. Okay, and what about your own evolution that way? Because you used to be, uh, if you watch your old videos, you're sort of very into suits. I think you had a job that was all about suit making and you're mm -hmm. wearing like three different layers of some complicated suit. And then, then you evolved to kind of, you got really into fitness and then you got into this more rugged thing. You're wearing like 
cool jackets that look like Bane might wear or something. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of exaggerating, but, but, and, and you kind of evolve your own style a lot. So mm-hmm. now people might not, before you'd have been like more archetypy, like, oh yeah, that guy probably is a, uh, working in men's fashion, but now they might not even say it consciously, even though your clothes are good, they might not, they might not immediately think that, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I think that's one of the things that's really fun about it is that your style should evolve with you as your life evolves. Cause you're right. I spent a lot of years working in custom suiting. I did, I did fittings and, and all of that myself. I oversaw six different stores for a company that I was part of. Like I was in the world of custom suiting. And at that point in my life, custom suiting made a ton of sense. And then when I left that and started doing this full time and I started getting involved a lot more in fitness and combat sports and a lot more stuff that way, then it made a lot more sense and it felt more congruent to introduce aspects of my style that were a little bit more rugged. And now for the last little while, and I feel like the momentum is just getting started, I'm finding that that has started to feel a little safe and stale and incongruent with where I am. And I'm looking at more of a combination of how I can how I can bring multiple elements of those in like I'm actually wanting to start getting back into suiting more and bringing that more into my life and rather than just being a like I said with with uh, the way to start I mean I live in the suburbs in Provo Utah where it's a bunch of tech firms and a bunch of guys that are programmers or sales guys or anything and so I have done what I recommend a lot of my clients do to start out which is I just do a better job of what the uniform around me is but I'm bored with that it doesn't feel congruent anymore and so I want to stand out more I want to embrace more of that uniqueness and so now I get to experiment with my own style and have it evolve to reflect that too and I wish more guys would embrace that, that you shouldn't dress the same at 35 that you do at 25 or or shouldn't look the same at 55. As your life evolves, your style should evolve with you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. But it's, yeah, it's a lot of effort for most people to keep, keep their style in line with where where they are, but that's what you're teaching people. It is, but it's not. As soon as you know how to do it, it feels incredibly natural. And the effort is something that is enjoyable as opposed to it being a chore or it being tedious. Right, right. You know, it's like, how much is your vocabulary or your, how, how, how much have your communication skills evolved over the last 10 years? Yeah, a lot. And is that a chore for you to use new expressions and new colloquialisms and new idioms and new metaphors? And you're excited about it because you're better able to articulate your point. You're better able to represent yourself you're better able to be understood by the people that matter it's not a chore it's actually natural and really enjoyable because you understand the principles of the spoken language or the written language and the same thing happens when you understand the principles of the visual language it's actually really fun and invigorating and enjoyable to have your style evolve with you as your life evolves interesting but it might not come as naturally to me like words are natural to me i've always been able to write I'm speaking is something I'm good at. I've done stand-up comedy for 11 years. Not when you were two. Not when I was two. Good point. It it feels like... You had to learn, right? Right, right, right. So we've got to go through this. And it's the same thing. As somebody who is as expressive as you are, as soon as you learn how to express yourself visually, you will find that it is just as fun as doing stand-up or being on camera, and it will supplement all of the things that you're doing. And this is what's so cool, is that it doesn't replace what you're doing with the written or the spoken word. Right now, it may undermine it a little bit, but when you do it right, it supplements it, and it expands it. You get a synergy between what you're communicating. Okay, well, that sounds good. I'm sold. So what about, um, 
But for me, I'm like at the, at the point where, just give me an example, because I know you've got sort of systems around this. Like I've got to go to a dinner on Saturday. It's going to be 33 mm-hmm. degrees, which is 90-something in uh, America. And I'm just thinking like, it's going to be too hot for me to go. I've got nothing. I've got one linen jacket that would work, but then I've got mm-hmm. no trousers that are they're going to be not too hot. And then, I'm going, then I've got to wear my shoes that are kind of uncomfortable. And I'm just going like, and I'm just like in a nightmare of like, maybe I can't, it's like Morrissey, I, I would go out but I, tonight, but I haven't got a stitch to wear. It's like, I can't actually go <laughs> to it. But you sort of solve things like that. You have like whole quite complicated systems, I think for like, well, they may not be complicated, but they're sort of systems in place for I'm going to X and I need to mm-hmm. hit these things, right? Yep, and it's not, it's not complicated. And again, you can think about it like the written or the spoken language where, I mean, English is a complicated language. Do you speak another language? No. I, I got to learn uh, to speak Spanish in Canada of all places, but, but as part of like missionary service for my church and Spanish is such a simple language compared to English, but it's still complicated to learn how to speak a new language. But once you understand the vocabulary and the grammatical structure and the basic principles, and you just put in the reps, it becomes very natural to express yourself through that language. And style is actually a much more simple language than anything that we write or anything that we speak. And so as soon as you learn how to do it, then you're good. And so, yeah, for your circumstances, as far as going to this dinner party, you just don't have the right vocabulary. That's it. Like There are ways to be able to dress entirely appropriately for the environment that don't sacrifice physical comfort. You just don't have the tools for it. You just don't have the, the framework or the vocabulary for it yet. And that's the kind of stuff that I help you figure out. Right. Yeah, it's kind of like I'm going to the dinner and they're all speaking Spanish. That's, that's how exactly. it's going. It. Exactly. Good point. Right. Interesting. Never thought of it like that. Very interesting. And and um, okay, what about what about um, some of the people you used to do these style breakdowns on YouTube, and you now still do them on mm-hmm. Twitter, and they're very entertaining. You'll just take a famous figure. Here's what I'd improve. Here's what I would change. Donald Trump. So and so on. What about um, maybe I'll ask you about a few of those. What about Jordan Peterson? He's been doing some crazy stuff with these suits lately. Peterson has been really interesting where when he first started making the transition into just higher end suiting, I was all for it. It was really fun to see because it added an element of credibility, authority and old world dignity. And it took him out of the stereotypically like almost goober professor realm that a lot of his aesthetic was before that, like that stereotypical kind of oblivious to the outside world, only thinking in theory college professor into somebody who had embodied something bigger than that. And I could certainly understand what he's doing by pushing the window even further. And as much as sometimes the execution is painful to see, I really appreciate that he's willing to take the risk. And he's in a position where he can afford, like he has enough social capital to take the risk. And so some of the stuff have been big misses, but the courage to be that public of a figure and take that kind of risk and get those big misses, that's the only way to get to really big wins too. And so execution, don't love a lot of it. Concept and willingness to engage, all for it. Think it's fantastic what he's doing. Yeah, he's got like that Twitter suit or something. Well, now it's X, but he had a Twitter suit. It was like all blue and he had a bunch uh-huh. of... He has With like, Elon on the tie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he has these two-faced suits that are completely different colors, two-tone suits kind of... Well, and you know that there's symbolism to all of this, right? That he had a he had a suit maker create one that represented each of the 12 different rules. Right. Yeah, and so again, there's, there's symbolism, there's meaning. He's trying to do something with it. 
And I think it goes back to this idea of a lot of people cringe at it because not because it's necessarily ugly, but, but it's because, oh, he's trying. I can't believe he's actually trying as opposed to just looking like it's completely effortless and accidental. And that's one of the curses of our generation is we cringe when we see people try. And I love that he's trying. I loved it when he had his original famous video when he was standing there and all those college students were protesting him and he just stood there and he had the white shirt and he had the braces. He looked like Michael Douglas in Falling Down. Uh-huh. <laughs> just yeah. kind of, no, I'm not going to say your pronouns while I'm wearing this shirt. It's kind of hilarious. But then he, yep. he got into the suiting, like you say, and it was... It was kind of one critique of it is that it's kind of he goes for it's almost like mafia suit these three-piece suits prior to the really crazy suits did you also find some of his three-piece suits a bit kind of mafia or a bit overdone or slightly lacking in taste no i think he was spot on with those where it was a very deliberate attempt because a lot of to me i think a lot of what peterson represents is getting back to this like self-determination and this idea of being part of a dignity culture as opposed to a victim culture. And the suits that he was wearing and the clothing that he was wearing, I feel like embodied that incredibly well, especially because they didn't look like a costume in that it wasn't actually vintage suits that they fit the way that suits fit in the 60s or in the 40s or something else like that. Like he didn't look like he was LARPing a different time period. And so it was a modern version of old world dignity and i feel like he really had the balance well with that okay yeah he wasn't in like a zoot suit or whatever those nope yeah we did we did it's funny you talk about dignity culture we did really lose that didn't we we in london you watch these videos on twitter in london in the 50s 60s whatever it is 20s late 1900s i've seen i've seen all these different ones um late 19th century they're all they look incredible and everyone's got mm-hmm. like that bowler hat period where everyone had a bowler everyone was slim in a in a well-cut suit with a bowler hat and it's like perhaps it lacked individuality but it's certainly the level of beauty and effort and dignity as you say was way higher wasn't it yeah and i would even make the argument that there was still quite a bit more individuality it's just that you had to be part of that culture to understand even what the differences were in the way that that tie was tied or the way that those pockets flared or the way that they would cuff this or pin that or anything else into us. We're so far removed from it that we don't see any differentiation. And I mean, you ask anybody who's uh, had to wear a work uniform or attend a private school where you have to wear a uniform, anytime you're in a place where your appearance is very limited, you will still find that people will do as much as they can to express individuality, even within those limitations. And so I would imagine you go back to London 150 years ago, and the the people then would still feel like there was quite a bit of self-expression and individuation in what they were wearing, even though all what we would see as a uniform. You're right, and I was trying to salvage one possible benefit, but it's actually just all got worse. It's definitely downhill. There was no, they still had the individuality and they just dressed much better. Um, what about, someone like oh yeah you talked about trump what about his style he kind of got this mm-hmm. kind of ridiculous massive suits and it kind of but it works for him as a kind of almost like everything's like exaggerated and semi-grotesque yep. yep i mean trump is there's nothing subtle about the man and it would be incongruent if there was anything that was subtle about his appearance from the weird hair to the extra long bright red phallic ties to all of like everything that he does and again like as from an aesthetic value standpoint, it's not there. there. There is not much, if anything, that is actually aesthetically pleasing or beautiful about Trump and his appearance. There's really not. But as far as congruence with what his message is and who he is, 
his style is spot on. Ideally, we would have both. We would have the aesthetic value and the congruence with the communication. But if you have to pick one, he's doing the right thing by, by choosing the congruence over the aesthetics. And that's part of the reason why he has the impact that he does. Yeah, if you go back to the past, his suits were more normal and he was more normal. And he was speaking mm -hmm. quite intelligently and reasonably and in a quite quiet voice. Then he kind of evolves. It's almost like the kind of WWE version of the character. Ratchets up. Yeah, the tan gets more and more tan. The hair gets more and mm -hmm. more orange or yellow. And it, it just all, yeah, ratchets up. It's kind of hilarious. But um, yeah, and what about... What about Andrew Tate then? Because he's someone who, you always see him now, he kind of this t-shirt and, and jacket kind of thing. And it's kind of, he didn't always do that. Either. You look back some of his old stuff, he's clearly not that into clothes. He's just wearing his gym gear and stuff like that. Tristan, this brother, is known more for his style. He makes more mm -hmm. effort with it, perhaps. They both make effort, but he's perhaps more really into it. I don't know, any comment yeah, on that? Yeah, Andrew just has a little bit more of like a simplified personal uniform, whereas Tristan gets a lot more expressive and has a broader range to it than, than what Andrew does, as what I would say is the big difference there is. Um, I actually just did a thread on this a couple weeks ago on the Tate brothers. And again, I think there's a ton of congruence where they are trying to represent that old world, very European, kind of like high status, almost James Bond lifestyle. And if you were to put those guys, I mean, imagine this. They're living where they do, they're driving the Bugattis, they're living the lifestyle that they do, and they're in cargo shorts and like Coca-Cola t-shirts. It's totally incongruent with what the message is that they're trying to convey. And not just incongruent as far as like, it doesn't have the same impact on their, on their fans or it doesn't grow their social media, but they feel incongruent in what their lifestyle is by dressing in a way that's totally disingenuous compared to everything else that they're doing. And so the fact that very rarely do you see either of them in jeans, it's almost always in like trousers and loafers and the shirts are always very simple, but it's still high quality material. Like all of that is very intentional and it's all very consistent with what their lives are. Yeah, and like I say, if you watch old videos, you can really see the evolution of that. Because before that, they did have the money, but they were still knocking around, not dressed mm -hmm. like that, and kind of, yep. you know, it was interesting. They, they, but yeah, it's very deliberate presentation of a sort of yeah aspirational certain aesthetic. What about the, oh yeah, the uniform you mentioned there? You called it a personal uniform, and this is mm -hmm. this idea. Everyone has a personal uniform, or maybe not everyone, but some people. And I, I always thought with Steve Jobs, he had a uniform. It was famously these blue jeans with the sort of with the white tennis shoes and the black polo neck and I always thought it's great to have a uniform but why such an awful one is that's what I've never <laughs> right? understood but it is it yeah. definitely reduces decision fatigue which was the intention I get it and I think that's the the real kind of humor and irony is that again you go back to London or the states 150 years ago and when everybody wore suits you also didn't have decision fatigue like it was there Right, and we've had to move away from it and then go back and recreate it. And then the irony is that almost everybody who's in a lot of these modern spaces, they just embrace the Steve Jobs or the Mark Zuckerberg or the Elon Musk personal uniform. And so you're really still just as conformist and just as confined as you chafe against when everybody was wearing suits 150 years ago. It's just baggy jeans, lame t-shirts, and dad sneakers is the new is the new suit. It's the new uniform, and you're not any more individualized or expressive or anything else. You're still just as trapped. Interesting. What about those um, people like Adam Sandler, who's kind of like they seem to like dress as deliberately badly as possible. 
Yeah, guys like Sandler, I think, are... Okay, there's a certain tier that you get to. Um, I think Zuckerberg is another good example of this, where it does become a flex to dress poorly because you're basically saying, I have so much status and I have attained so much wealth and so much influence that I can dress in basketball shorts and baggy t-shirts and it's not going to negatively impact me in any way. In fact, it's the guys that wear suits that they work for me and they want to be on my team and they want to be involved with me. And so for guys like that, it's a flex. I hate it. I think it's a, it's a terrible flex, not only from a personal or a beauty perspective, but even just what it says about culture. But it is an effective flex. And what's sad, though, is you get Mark, who is like a senior UX developer, who thinks that he can get the same flex, but you're not in the top 0.001% like Sandler and Zuckerberg and these guys are. And so guys like that are hamstringing themselves because you don't have the social capital or the status to be able to spend it all on really, really intentionally ugly and crappy clothing. Right. You've got to have made a lot of ridiculous movies to dress that badly. Mm -hmm. um, but I do like Sandler. He's, Ironically, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He is a great actor, though. He's done some great stuff. But yeah, and he seems like apparently he's a great guy as well. But he, um, yeah, I mean, I saw a picture of him dressed terribly next to a woman dressed really well at like a red carpet mm -hmm. event and people are sharing it like like it's kind of an example of like misogyny or double standards but was it really just about relative status because just because he's Sandler I think it's part of it but I also think that again if you understand how deeply men care about clothing as a reflection of identity I think if you were to put Sandler in something that actually looked good and fit him aesthetically he would feel completely out of his skin. He would feel so incredibly uncomfortable where it just would not feel congruent. It would not feel like himself. And so he, and again, he's, he's got enough status that he can do that. I mean, I have a friend that we were talking the other day, he's really uh, big in the bodybuilding space, incredibly well-built and he's not going to his best friend's wedding in Italy because he can't wear gym shorts to the ceremony because that's the only thing that he ever wears. That's the only thing that he feels like himself in. <laughs> You know, it's like it's so viscerally uncomfortable to put on an external version of himself that feels like a lie that he will miss this incredible opportunity so that he can stay in his gym shorts. And I think I think Adam Sandler is in a very similar position. That's so funny. I'm thinking about missing a, a, a birthday dinner because it'll be too hot, which I thought was absurd. Mm -hmm. This guy's thinking about missing his best friend's wedding because he can't wear shorts. That's right? hilarious. But yeah, yeah, but I tell but you, it's it just not that shows how much we care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm mainly just thinking about comfort, like, oh, I'm going to be so hot and be awful. But that is part of it. Although you say quite interestingly somewhere that we've become too pathetic about, I'm paraphrasing, about comfort when it comes to clothes. Like men aren't that bothered about comfort. We're going to the gym, we're doing sparring, we're, you know, we're, we're doing tough things in life. And then we're going, oh, but I want to be comfortable in my clothes. And you just uh -huh. think that's a bit lame. I think it's, I think it's really weird that... Aesthetics is really the only place where the most masculine expression is the one that focuses on the most comfort because the, the guy that you hire at work or the guy that you promote at work is not the one who wants to be the most comfortable. The guy who's the best fighter is not the one who's the most comfortable, but somehow the guy who has the best attitude about clothing or the way that his home or his apartment looks or anything else is the guy who just wants to be comfortable and wants to put in the, the least amount of effort into it. It's really backwards in comparison to everything else that we judge masculinity by. But it, it must be like one component. Like I went out, I had these really nice new, new shoes 
and they are really good. But then I went out. We went. The night went much further than I thought. End up in this club, and they, then they've got like glass, and they're on. They're ruining the soles are getting ruined. Then my feet are like mm-hmm. virtually bleeding because I knew I'm not broken them in properly. There must be uh-huh. a level where you're like, I'm too uncomfortable to actually enjoy this now because I've not got my totally. clothes. Totally. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, and you certainly don't want to get to that point, and you want to be able to wear clothing that is physically comfortable. And I think that's one of the other problems is that a lot of guys, when it comes to wearing stylish clothing, and again, they associate stylish with formal, and when you're wearing crappy dress dress shoes or you're wearing terrible suits, they're not comfortable. But when you wear stuff that is really well-made and it's seasonally appropriate materials and it fits you the way that it's supposed to, it's actually very comfortable. And I mean, if you think about it again, you go back, I mean, dude, you go back 30 years and nobody's wearing athletic wear and nobody's wearing tech fabrics and you go back 200 years and people are wearing clothing that today we have this psychological belief that it's uncomfortable, but physically it wasn't. And so most guys, when they say that they're wanting to be comfortable, what they think they're saying is I want to be physically comfortable, but really what they're saying is that I want to be psychologically comfortable. Hmm. I feel psychologically uncomfortable in what this clothing is. I think for me, some of it is physical. I mean, like I've got like my feet are like I have to wear new balance trainers to get the width, to, mm-hmm. which is the most cringe thing. And so then I've got these shoes that are really nice and they're, they are wider fit. They're Farragama, which is a great make. But then it's like still had problems with them. You know, Boris Johnson, who was our prime minister, which didn't mm-hmm. go that well. He, um, well, it did for a little bit. He, um, he, he gets these special made ones at like several thousand and they mm-hmm. make them handmade. And you just wear them for life. They're what they call John Lobb, I think. Something like that. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, and that's one you, way. You go back prior to industrialization and your village cobbler would do that for you. Right, right. He, you, every, you only own custom shoes. Right. Because either you made them, your spouse made them, or the cobbler made them. Like there was no mass production of these things. And so you get a guy in Balmoral's 300 years ago and he's not uncomfortable in them because they're custom made for him. Man, everything was couture. We've, our culture's gone so downhill. <laughs> You're in the local village and they're making these shoes for you. You're right, that's uh-huh. now like elite luxury because we have, ah, oh, man, I'm so annoyed about that now. Um, <laughs> uh, the last of my style breakdowns, Daniel Craig. Is, everyone holds up Daniel Craig as this guy of like the, the ultimate archetype for men. And I went back and looked at some of the, for some reason I was looking at the evolution of his style. He wore some terrible, terrible stuff. It's only very recently where he hid it briefly and mm-hmm. you look back there's one where he's wearing like boot cut like blue denim jeans with an <laughs> awful shirt it's so bad it's like your it's dad so just bad. left work and is picking up his daughter from netball practice it's like in the in 1992 it's so bad i think it probably was the 90s so or 2005 bad. or something and it's like that's so bad how have you done that and even when he gets better it, it doesn't quite get it right. He's, okay, it's formal, but then it still looks kind of weird. And he eventually sort of hits it. Mm-hmm. But it's funny how that, like people think, oh, he was just sort of born looking like Bond. But it's just, he basically, someone gave him those clothes and spent a lot of totally. time on it. Especially someone like Craig, where you get him or Ryan Reynolds or a lot of these guys that they're not doing any of this themselves. They're paying stylists thousands and thousands of dollars year after year to do this for them because they re- they recognize that they are a brand and it needs to come out that way. You get a few other guys like Ryan Gosling or Chris Pine that they really seem to embrace this of themselves and have really developed their own kind of unique personal style and maybe they're still partnering with the stylist but they embody it. But yeah, you go back to a lot of these guys before they were big enough to really afford great stylists and their style is terrible, and now it looks like it's fully embodied by who they are. Yeah, 
And so how do people do that on a budget then? Because we've talked about Boris Johnson's shoes cost thousands and Craig has stylists that cost thousands. How do people do mm -hmm. it without, without thousands to spend on this stuff? So this is where, again, it comes back to just finding better versions of what you're currently wearing. So being able to focus on, okay, I'll give you a few kind of practical things. Uh, for the most part, I would say get rid of anything that has any branding or any major logos on it. Because what you're then signaling is that your worth is attributed to your consumption of that product or your affiliation with that brand, as opposed to you being the, the main focus unto itself. Um, you don't have to focus a ton on color or pattern. A lot of other, a lot of guys tend to think that if they want to dress more interesting, that they need to embrace formality or a bunch of different colors or a bunch of different patterns. But if you wear simple stuff that fits well and you focus on like black and white and navy and brown and gray, good neutral colors, then you can put together a really pretty good wardrobe without it having to be anything crazy. And so realistically, you can go into you can go to Uniqlo or H&M or Zara or Old Navy or Target or any of these other places. And if you have a good idea of how stuff should fit and you're willing to wear things that are solid and simple and maybe you get stuff that has some good texture to it, you can still dress well on a budget. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, that was awesome. All those style breakdowns. I don't want to take too much of your time, but I do want to ask you a couple of other things. You're sort of associated a little bit with the so-called manosphere, which is this kind of cringe term no one's been able to improve upon, which is just basically, if, if the women listening don't know, or the men who have other lives, it's just sort of a male culture on the internet, on YouTube, you know, mm -hmm. stuff like Tate, but also loads of other people. And you've spoken at the events and things, but what is your take on the kind of red pill versus tradcon stuff? So you're a member of the Church of Jesus of the Latter-day Saints. I always get it wrong how you say it. I've, I said it to you just... Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day yeah, Saints. Yeah, I said it to you yeah. just before the podcast and still got it wrong, which some people call no Mormon, but you guys prefer that term. And um, and I was saying all the Mormons I've met are excellent people, which I, I stick by. But how does that... Where do you sit on that, on that sort of debate, which is people like Pearl are very popular right now. She's doing sort of red pill stuff. And the basic difference is, should people have families and, and just live like we're in the past? Or do they have to kind of look at the reality of the modern dating world and so on and just kind of get what they can out of it in a slightly more cynical way? That's my take on it. Yeah. Um, that's a hard question for me because I recognize that I am fully still in an area of, you know, one way that you can put it is like, I recognize my privilege, but really like I'm in Utah in a culture that is predominated by Latter-day Saints. And it is still very much part of the culture here that you get married and you have kids. And for the most part, the husband works and the wife is a full-time mom and you get married young. Okay, like the neighborhood that we're in right now, out of the, what, 100, 110 homes that are in kind of like our little, uh, little pocket neighborhood, um, we have, hundreds of kids under the age of 10 and most of the most of the wives don't work and i would say the average age is probably like mid 30s and most families have anywhere between three and four kids and like this is just the world that i get to exist in and and so for me to talk about red pill terms like hypergamy or status or other things is very different how it applies within that cultural context and same thing to talk about traditionalism and tradcon stuff is very different as it applies in my context than it is for 
a guy who's 35 and is only able to really like online date and he lives in the middle of Long Island. You know, like it's just, they're, they're totally different worlds. And so I'm really grateful and blessed that I get to be part of a culture that still embodies a lot of these, these things, family, uh, traditionalism, a focus on a focus on love, a focus on those kind of values. I, I'm really grateful that I still get to be part of it. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. So you're almost in just this microcosm. It's almost like a different world. You're still in a completely different world. So you haven't had to totally. Yeah, you haven't had to reckon. I'm in an oasis. Whenever when the rest of the world is in ruins, I'm still in an <laughs> oasis somewhere. Totally. That must be yeah. nice. Um, yeah. It sounds nice. And therefore, you, and you've got six children. It's, it's you and Tyson Fury. And Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's a politician here, I mean, that's quite, that's quite rare these days as well. Even in my culture, that's pretty rare. Um, I would say most of the families that are my age are now topping off at like three or four, somewhere between two and four. And so for us to be at six is kind of on the high end, but not on the obscenely high end like it would be for us outside of this culture, for sure. And has that had an impact on your style? Because the last thing a dad with six kids and some of them presumably quite young, that's the style is the last thing they could generally think they could focus on, right? Uh, yes and no. Um, it definitely has allowed it for my style to be more simple, but I also feel more pressure to have my style be what it is because I am strongly of the opinion that fatherhood is something that should be aspirational. I think fathers have a moral obligation to make adulthood and parenthood as aspirational as possible. I don't know how it was for you, but I know for me, um, my dad was probably more neutral where he didn't make fatherhood look bad, but he didn't necessarily make it look super appealing. But a lot of the other men in my neighborhood growing up or in my church growing up, my friends' dads, my church leaders, I just always looked at, at, at adulthood like anything out of my early 20s as just kind of like the end where you, you give up your hobbies, your wife henpecks you, your kids don't really respect you. You lose your physique, like you don't have any energy or enthusiasm. There's no real freedom. There's no real sovereignty. You're just kind of like trapped in the stereotypical suburban purgatory. And I believe that we have an obligation to be the kind of fathers that our sons want to grow up to be and that our daughters want to grow up to marry men like us. And I do think that style is part of that. If my kids can see a father who is intentional and deliberate and self-development minded in every regard, then it makes fatherhood look less like purgatory. Yeah, interesting. I'm not sure about my own dad with regards to that. One thing he didn't do is teach an awful lot of things explicitly. I think he'd come from a generation very their parents were very strict and it was very old school. And then they they were more like the boomer generation that didn't want to over pressure. And then you didn't really learn anything. Nothing got like passed down. Mm -hmm. But um, so would you... And then, but I do get what you say about the purgatory. I see it more in like people I know, maybe like in my football team, you have like, oh, I'll see if I'm allowed out that night or something. And I'm just like, really? And I just look at it and go, I couldn't be like them, but maybe I'm sure they're happier than me, but I'm just like, I couldn't be like maybe checking. Not. Well, yeah, I definitely couldn't be checking if I'm allowed out for the football game that week. But, but um, would you explicitly teach sort of style to your kids then? Or do you think, or would they just absorb it? So what we do with our kids is, and I've got five girls and one son. And so what we do is uh, we will shop seasonally for them. We will do like new clothes, fall and winter, and then new clothes again, spring and summer. And up until they're about eight or nine years old, 
my wife and I will just pick everything for them. And we make it a point to buy clothing that looks great, that looks good. It actually reflects like their coloring and who they are. And my kids are very used to uh, having their clothing and their appearance be noticed and be complimented and be appreciated by, by adults in their lives. And that's, that's something that's habitual for them. As they get older, then it turns more into teaching. And we talk about like, what is it that you wanna wear and how do you wanna express yourself? And a lot of that is giving up things. My son right now is nine and he likes to wear Legend of Zelda t-shirts because he's really into the game. And I don't love the aesthetic, but it's more important that he learns how to be able to have the proper relationship between identity and aesthetics and he figures that out and I work with him on it, then it is that I'm going to force you to wear clothing that I think is aesthetically appropriate and you don't get any say in it. Hmm. Because then he'll just hate the idea of clothing altogether. So I'm working with him just like we're working with my oldest daughter on it too. Okay, fascinating. It's one, one last question then, which may be more on brand for, for my podcast, which is I quite often ask people how we win the culture war. I mean, that implies two things. That one, we're on the same side and that there is a culture war, or three things in it, it can be won. But, but where do you see things going? We've talked about the culture a bit here and you know, that it's kind of sad where it's at, that these kind of concerns we're talking about are sort of niche. Where do you see it mm-hmm. going in the future based on where we are now? Are you hopeful in any way or, or pessimistic? Both, <laughs> it yeah. depends on the day and depends on what I'm seeing on my Twitter feed. But um, I think the biggest thing that we can do to win the culture war is we know that we know that Babylon is on fire. We know that what that what the world is right now doesn't work. But the problem is, is so much of the focus is on pointing fingers and saying this doesn't work. And there's not actually anything that we're building aspirationally that we're trying to point people toward. So many of the people that are of our ideological bend or mindset are way more interested in dunking on the left or you know getting the most likes for those memes or any of that. And it's a purely reactionary or reactive approach. We're not building things. We're not building alternative styles. We're not building alternative music. We're not building alternative architecture. We're not creating a culture that people can actually move to. We're just letting them know that Babylon or Rome or whatever you want to call it, that that's on fire and they need to get out. But you get out and you flee into the desert and you die in the desert. We need to create something for people to go toward and to move into as opposed to just getting out. Yeah, sometimes my friend Leo says, um, you know, this is good for us because it, it helps our grift, you know, because we're like, this, <laughs> this is chaos, but we get to comment on it and we can have jobs doing that. It's just a mm-hmm. joke. But the other thing you said, that is a good point. It reminds me of us. I was at an event with Douglas Murray and he said, a question worth considering is what would we be thinking about if we weren't thinking about what's the definition of a woman? A great it, way to put yeah, it. If we weren't wasting our time on this garbage, what would we be doing? And that's more like building yeah. in the way you say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the biggest problems with uh, traditionalism or conservatism in general is that rather than seeing everything that previous generations had created for us that were these these Chesterton fences, right? Like these great structures and all of these other things as foundations that we can build upon and we can take things even further and we can we can expand upon. We just see them as these fragile, precisely perfect things that need to be maintained and, and kept stagnant. And the problem is, is that 
I would argue that humanity is growth oriented, that from a macro perspective, even if individuals are not growth oriented, humanity is growth oriented. And if the only two options that we have are stagnancy or complete rejection of tradition, either of those is hell and it's a total false binary. And so instead of just trying to go back to the, you know, like return meme or anything that way, you, you don't, you, you don't stagnate. You don't go backwards. We have to take what those principles were and build something. And it gets harder as we move further and further away from that. Then it means that we can't actually build off of those systems and structures. We actually have to take those principles and build something entirely new. And that becomes a much more difficult task. And so the longer it takes for us to build, the harder it's going to be for us to do it. Wow. Very interesting answer. So it's not about just going back to wearing a bowler hat. It's something else. It's about mm-hmm. retaining tradition, but, but focusing on growth. Right. Because, I mean, the tradition is dignity, self-respect, politeness, humility, mastery, credibility, authority. But Romans weren't wearing bowler hats. The Japanese weren't wearing bowler hats. The Aztecs weren't wearing bowler hats. These were all cultures that had elements of that and they were represented in very different ways. And the further we remove ourselves from suiting culture, from bowler hats, from what the Western world presented that to be, the harder it is to hold on to that and retain it. And the more important it is for us to create something that's entirely new and entirely different. Okay. So it's kind of like moving forward with those core values intact. And that's like our vehicle that we're in and we kind of push forward in that. All right. Brilliant answer. Fascinating. We could almost do another hour on that, but I'm going to let you go. Where can people find you, Tanner? Okay, so I am most active on Twitter and Instagram. Those are both at Tanner Guzzi. And then if you want to learn more about the site, the book, coaching, anything like that, you can go to masculine-style.com. Or like Nick said, the book is called The Appearance of Power. You can get it on Amazon. You can listen to me read it to you on Audible. Lots of different options there. Yeah, and the Audible is great, so I highly recommend that. And uh, this was fascinating for me. I hope it was for everyone else. And thanks so much for doing the show, Tanner. Thanks for having me on. All right, that was Tanner. Great guy. Very interesting episode, I thought. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing it. If you're watching on YouTube, hit subscribe. Give us a like. If you're listening on the audio, why not leave us a five-star review? And the best way to support the show for now is to go to buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon, and you can buy me a digital coffee. Leave a comment. I reply to all of them buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon. It's all much appreciated. And we'll see you again next week.